there have been a, a lot of new visitors and new folks, and I want to kind of bring you along with where we are going as a church. Um, I've learned a lot about communicating vision and not vision in terms of something unique to me, but in terms of what are our commitments as a church? What is our vision for Christianity? Uh, not our, again, not ours as in unique to us, but when you come here, what can you expect to find and, and what, what are you going to be shown in terms of expectations on you as a Christian? So we want to be clear about who we are and what we're shooting for, what we're going after together. And so in our welcome banner, Tim, maybe you just want to throw that up. The very first one, when you first walk in, you see Evergreen Chapel, and then you'll see these three uh, posts, these three words. There you go. So you've got Bible, witness, and cultivate at the bottom here. And you may be, if you're new, thinking, what are those words about? And um, those are our three commitments. Tim, you can throw back to the... To the um, the sermon slide there, but what we've identified in terms of our commitments as a church is, is, is that we are for and we are going after Bible literacy for all, all right? So we want to make sure our children are being saturated with the Bible. We want to make sure you are being saturated with the Bible. We want our worship gatherings and how we operate as a church to be saturated by and in accordance with the Bible. The second one is, is witness Bible, witness, and cultivate. So witness pertains to the reality that Christ told us that people would know that we are disciples in the way that we love one another. And so that, that pertains to not just your biblical knowledge, but how you live in accordance with your brothers and sisters in the church. All right, that's why we emphasize making meals for each other when we have babies. Or that's why we emphasize helping each other out when somebody's sick. And, and I've seen that happen really well here as a church. But we want to make sure that that is what you understand to be part of your spiritual worship. Part of your membership in this church is to serve and love each other because we recognize how powerful a witness that is. And then the third one is uh, cultivate. And that is to say, we don't put on a lot of programs here at this church. We don't have a thing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night for you to come and huddle in the church because we believe as Christians, God has commissioned us to go into the world and to cultivate the world in the same way that God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, be fruitful and multiply and make out of this usefulness for people. We believe that that's our calling. And so if you have your kids in soccer or if you are in a, a Mensa club or a Toastmasters or something like that, we believe that's a, those are good things, that we're going to be salt and light as we involve ourselves in the world. Um, not to be of the world, but to be in it. And so we believe in cultivation. And so we want to equip you to be faithful Christians. And then we want to make sure that you are being salty and lighty where you are. All right. And so that's why, again, we don't put on a lot of programs. We don't want to steal all of your time. That's why we believe so strongly in the Sunday corporate gathering of his people, because that's the only time in the Bible that we recognize is that's it. That's what you're expected as a Christian, to invest in terms of each other and corporate worship, but then we got to live our lives too. And so we, we hope that that's a helpful approach. That's our commitment as a church. And this morning, I do want to talk a little bit about that first one, that biblical literacy. And this is, you're going to hear this pounded throughout the year, um, but January 5th, whatever it is, you're really going to hear it pounded. And that's where our text is going to bring us this morning. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. <clears throat> but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you sec accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin? in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was in need. 
I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrain and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why so? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Father, this text we open our eyes to and we ask now that you would help us to understand it. Lord, may your spirit powerfully help us to to apply and understand and believe and even glory in this text, Lord, for it is inspired by your spirit. It is given to us for our learning, for our benefit, and ultimately for the worship of Jesus Christ. So help my lips now speak what is true, Lord. Help our ears to cling to that which is from you. Lord, and may you bind and build up your body here this morning, Lord, that an unstoppable church would be constructed and built even here this morning. We ask this in faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. So we do always want to keep our direction in view as a church. We do want to keep our direction in view. Where are we going Um, I want to remind you, and if you don't know, we are a church plant. Uh, We began in 2016 as a church. Uh, Some of you have been there since the very beginning, and we're so thankful for your partnership with Evergreen. Some of you are very quite new to this, and I want to help you understand uh, what it means to be a church plant and why this passage is so significant for us. Uh, Church planting in general right now is actually, um, it's a force, it is a... It's an endeavor that is being taken up in greater and greater degrees by many church denominations here in Canada. Church planting has become a very significant aspect of church investment and church ministry across many denominations, okay, in a way that was not true even 10 years ago. But 15 and 20, 30 years ago was almost an unheard of uh, enterprise as basically mainline churches were full of worshipers. And so church planting has sort of taken off as an answer to what we've seen in the culture and what we've seen in the church, which is a dramatically declining church attendance in the last 15 years. And as that has happened, as people have lost interest in their local church, many of these churches have reinvented themselves as sort of a loose-fitting Christian-ish garment for anyone to sort of wrap around them if they have any interest at all in faith or they're on some kind of journey. And it sort of has been this wide-armed approach to so-called Christianity. And what has happened in that process is churches have radically diminished the importance of conversion to Christ, and they have radically undermined the importance of commitment to that local church. So churches have almost become sort of a watering station for anybody remotely interested in spirituality. And you have a a, a very loose-fitting connection one to another. And you have clergy burnout because you have these, uh, um, you know, worship pastors and preaching pastors killing themselves to make sure that their church is the most interesting and engaging for whoever might be wandering through on any given Sunday. It's a broken system, and I don't say that to judge other churches, but it's a reality that I've seen over and over and over again in many smaller town mainline churches desperate to try to claw back the attention of their congregations. The church is also waking up to a culture that no longer feels guilty for having nothing to do with church, right? So 20, 30, 40 years ago, you can engage somebody on in, in, in the level of Christianity on their faith, and immediately their, their face would almost go red, and they would start backpedaling and talking about why I, they haven't been to church, or I'm, I'm looking to get back. And even as I began this church plant, I had a hilarious relationship with some people that I'd known for a long time, and they had sort of frequented our church. 
and I would see them in the street, and, and they would start, their lips would start flapping about how, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're coming back, Pastor, and it's like, you don't, like, you don't answer to me, right? And so, but our culture largely has lost that sense of guilt, that sense of I should be in church, but I'm not. And so an evangelist, all you had to do was sort of leverage that and get them into the church and hopefully they would hear a gospel message and so be converted to Christ. Well, that's no longer the case. Now you engage with people and, and they've got every, there's almost a pride in having abandoned the church. People wear it on their sleeves as a, as a, ma- a badge of honor that, well, I used to be religious, but now, you know, I'm sort of free from that. And so the church is waking up to this culture that has no interest in what we're doing. Which is why it's so silly. It is so silly when churches turn to things like movies or music or artistic expression or drama or all kinds of trappings to try to attract people because people can get that anywhere. They can go to Cineplex. They can go to Broadway. They can go to Toronto. They can go to, you know, TD, TD Place for a concert. They don't need us to do that. And so the church has found itself flapping around, trying to get people to pay attention to what we're doing, and the culture doesn't care. That's why church planting has become essential. The church is also losing our, our next generation of children at a rate of 75%. Seven to eight out of, um, out of 10 children or young adults leave the church by age 23 which coincides roughly with um, post-graduation of, uh, of university. So what is the church doing about this? What are, this is the reality that we're living in. So church planting has taken this cultural moment and said, we want to go into especially local towns, small towns, because the big cities get a lot of attention for church revitalization, whereas small towns don't. Small towns, no, there's not a great enough population. Uh, The cash flow ratio is harder to get to. It's harder to support a big staff. And so small towns are in desperate need of biblical, committed churches who will inject uh, scriptural faithfulness and ecclesiology, which means church structure, into communities to give people a taste of what real church is about. And that's not to say Smith Falls does not have real churches. It does. And they do wonderful things. And, and that is not what I'm saying. But what, I'm, but what we need to recognize is that 9 out of 10 people in Smith Falls do not attend a church. There's some 8, 9,000, 10,000 people in Smith Falls. There's probably 10,000 now. All right, after Tweed and everything brought in all those jobs. There's probably 9,000 people in this town who right now are at home making brunch, watching the news. They have no involvement in church. So... The argument that the churches are all so full, we don't need another one, or everyone is already Christian, we don't need more churches, doesn't work. In fact, new churches, church plants, are statistically much more likely to reach the lost, to, to, to be able to approach the scriptures from a fresh light without the baggage of denominational hooks or former cliques. We're all kind of new to this church, right? So that's a good thing. And people have said that over and over again in the last four years. It's good to be at a church where everyone's new. So let's try to make sure that we don't adopt and and deform ourselves into all the things uh, that people find challenging about older churches. Now, that's a word for another story, but this is why church planning is critical. And one of my best friends just joined the Feb Central church planning stream. All right, he was a a full-time young adults pastor at a massive church, great big salary, not big, but like comfortable. And he said, I want to be a part of this movement. I want to be a part of reaching the lost starting a small church in a part of town where nothing fancy is going on. And this is what's happening in Canada right now. And it's exciting. And I'm so glad we're a part of it. But this is why we need to clearly define what we're about. Because there's a lot of things people might think about church when they walk into a building like Evergreen and say, this is a church. This is like any other thing that I've been to. Which is why we want to say, maybe, but this is what we're about. And you can take it or leave it. And so we're about the Bible. And we're about community witness in the way we love each other. And we're about faithful cultivation. Now, this passage pertains specifically to that first commitment, this idea of biblical literacy. And we've spoken about biblical literacy in the positive sense. In other words, we preach the Bible, we teach the Bible, we discuss the Bible, we try to obey specific things in the scriptures. And we've already paid a certain level of a price for our obedience to scripture. 
But this idea of biblical literacy and biblical strength is not only spoken of in the positive. In other words, do this. It's also spoken of in the negative in terms of defend against its error. Defend against its counterfeiting. Defend and expose that which is untrue. And so we need to embrace the whole part of biblical literacy and biblical faithfulness, which is not just to do the positive work of sowing the seed, but we also need to confront false teaching. And the reason is because we believe that every revival in culture must begin with revival in the human heart. You will not see cultural revival. You will not see national revival. You will not see Smith Falls revival until Christians in Smith Falls are revived and renewed in the word of God. And spiritual renewal, whether you like to hear it or not, springs forth from the church. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean to say that you can't have spiritual experiences or spiritual depth in your private relationship with the Lord. You can, or with your brothers and sisters over coffee. But spiritual revival springs forth by God's design from the church. It is said that as the church goes, so the culture goes. And in the church, this revival must be fueled by the preaching and believing of God's word. And so we look at this passage as a model for this almost negative aspect of biblical literacy and biblical faithfulness. We do face three obstacles as a young church in terms of being obedient to this aspect of biblical literacy, which is to confront error and to expose it as counterfeit. There's three obstacles. Number one, our church is young. We don't have any street cred, okay? We don't have any sort of record. We haven't earned the right to sort of be a voice on the quote-unquote spiritual scene. I'm personally young, okay? So it can be seen as arrogant to expose false teaching, right? It can just be seen as arrogant. So that's one of the obstacles that we face in terms of being faithful to this aspect of biblical ministry. Number two obstacle, Canadian culture blasts, and I mean blasts, the critique of any sincere person. If somebody's sincere, you just cannot touch what they're saying. You cannot touch what they believe. They're sincere, so back off. That's private for them. It's just heavily unpopular to do so. And number three, and I think this is an indictment on the church itself, mainline church life has convinced us that exposing falsehood and deceivers in other words, exposing false Christianity is somehow harmful or fruitless or that it's not our job, that God will somehow do it in a sort of mystical, disembodied way. That's not our job. That's not the church's job. We just want to do the positive. We just want to sow the seed. It's God's job to expose false teaching. And unfortunately, by Paul's own words, that's not an option for the church. There's three solutions to those obstacles. Number one, Paul was the youngest and last apostle. He was the youngest, right? He said, as one untimely born, Christ appeared to me. In other words, Jesus had already gone up to heaven before Paul even got saved. So all these other apostles got to walk with Jesus. They had street cred. But Paul is just one who had a vision and he was late to the scene and he was always ridiculed for that. He was called an imposter. He was marginalized in terms of his authority. People said, oh, he's weak. He's ugly. I mean, who is this guy? And so he's constantly having to contend for the truth from this position of disadvantage. But it didn't stop him. When Peter was in error, Peter, who was the chief apostle, you may have heard of him, the cornerstone, or not the cornerstone, but this stone that Jesus said he would build the church on, the confession that Peter made, the apostle in Jerusalem the head of the main church, Paul confronts and rebukes him publicly. Paul's not worried about street cred. He's worried about the truth. Okay, so that's solution number one. Youth doesn't matter. Number two, church leaders answer to God, not the culture for approval. So this is to the Canadian culture part. Paul says to Timothy in first, uh, 2 Timothy 2, present yourself as a worker, not ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, we labor before God. I'm not worried about what the culture says is appropriate or inappropriate or acceptable or unacceptable. Um, the scriptures will guide me in that. And so we present ourselves to God, not to the culture for approval. In fact, uh, to a greater and greater degree, cultural nonconformity 
uh, will be a mark of faithfulness in the church in 2020, I believe. Number three, the church has, as I said, convinced us that exposing falsehood is harmful. It's not our job. Um, First John tells us that separating from the church is both commanded by God. Okay, Paul deals with this with the adulterous uh, man who sleeps with his father's uh, new wife. Paul says, have nothing to do with him. Judge inside the church. Christians are to judge one another and to purge evil from our midst and uh, to pursue purity in that way. And in 1 John, uh, it's also necessary. It's necessary so that people would identify what the true church is. And so the question we are asking ourselves is, what is biblical ministry in light of these responsibilities? Now again, please hear me say, this will go online, this will be a podcast. I am not standing on an evergreen soapbox saying, we have it figured out and all these other churches can't do anything right. That's not what church planning is about. It gets a rap for that because young hotshot guys roll into town thinking we've got all the theology, we've got all the practice, we've got it together. I wear nicer clothes than, you know, the old frumpy guy at this church. It's true. We have a reputation for being arrogant. That's not what this is about. This is not a critique on any particular church. This is to say this must be an aspect of all churches. Churches that have been here 30, 40, 100 years, they are responsible for the same scriptures that I am. I'm just saying that as a young church and in our cultural moment, we may face greater obstacles to obedience to this text in ways that older churches might assume for themselves anyway. And so I'm just opening our eyes to our situation and the dangers we might face as a young church. I know that was the longest introduction I've ever given. So let's dive into the text. So what is biblical ministry? This is a fantastic passage to describe biblical Christian church ministry. And Paul gives it in a very autobiographical form. He's really speaking from his own relationship to the church. This is not just some sort of theological um, distant or detached approach to theological purity. Paul is saying, as one who loves you, I'm concerned for what's going on in your church. And he's looking at a, he's laying out for us a pattern for progress. And what's amazing is I actually find a lot of similarities with um, the Canadian 21st century church uh, with the first century Corinthian church. And we'll see why. And so my heading has three points. Number one, we see Paul's concern, which is that there is a threat of wandering There's a threat of wandering away. Okay, that's the first point that Paul's concern addresses. Number two, that the church is going to be too easygoing with deception. And number three, that biblical ministry must be contrasted against false ministry. Biblical ministry must be held up and contrasted against unfaithful or unbiblical ministry. And so he begins by saying, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul begins this point of contention where he is going to reach deep into their hearts and, and make a bold claim for them. He first exposes his vulnerability to them. And he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness because this being a a Greek or formerly pagan church or at least heavily made up of pagans, there's a strong emphasis on wisdom and eloquence among these people that they would get up and be strong, polished orders. And Paul is saying, would you bear with me being a little bit foolish right now? I'm going to expose my heart. I'm just going to tell it to you like it is. I'm not going to bring down lofty, you know, heavenly, distant ideas. I'm just going to bring out my concern. And so he exposes this vulnerable connection to them. And he says, I'm jealous. I'm jealous for you. You've experienced jealousy, right? It might be one of the most horrible things to admit to somebody. I've been jealous of you. I have been jealous of you or jealous of you. For you in Paul's sense. So Paul does not experiencing a sinful jealousy here. He is jealous for them, for their faithfulness. And, and you might have experienced this if you have a best friend. And I think back to grade three when friends would shift a lot around a lot. And one of my best friends and I, we'd head out for recess and I would go right and look over my shoulder and 
he went left. You know, where'd he go? And I'm jeal- and I look over the playground and I see him playing a new game with some new friends. And you're jealous for that relationship. You're jealous for that friend. It hurts. It stings. You go back and the rest of your day hurts. Paul is saying, I'm jealous for you, Corinthians. I'm jealous for you. I see a struggle. I see a threat that you're going to wander away from what I have brought to you. Because what does he say? I have betrothed you to one husband to present to you a pure virgin to Christ. This is Paul almost speaking as a groomsman or as a father who has brought along a bride and presented this bride to Jesus Christ. This is the essence of church planting where you're gathering people who were either wandered from the Lord or they are lost and you're saying there's hope for you. Some of you have recently come to the Lord sitting in these chairs because this church was planted. And that's God's sovereignty. That's not my intelligence. That's not my gifts. That's nothing. That's the fact that every time a church pops up, it is a good thing if the word of God is preached. And some of you are a testament to that. You have been brought back under God's wing as a result of the preaching of his word. And Paul is saying, I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's, that's my mandate to you, that I would present you, Evergreen Chapel, spotless, to Christ, that I would present you mature to Jesus Christ. There's almost a bridegroom ushering along the church to meet her Lord, to meet her groom. And Paul says, I'm I'm jealous because I see you looking over your shoulder. I see you looking out the window. I see you eyeing your garments like you want to get changed and go out to the nightclub and meet new guys. He's saying, I'm, I'm jealous. I don't, I don't see you looking at Christ the way I thought you would. And so Paul is exposing his vulnerability to them. It's very autobiographical. It's very personal for him. And he says, this is what I'm worried about. There is a threat lurking in your church. There is a threat among you. And he said, I see you the same way Eve was in the garden. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, Satan infiltrates the church. He brings in cunning teaching, cunning being crafty or subtle teaching. And then he's going to lead people away. He's going to pick people off. And he's going to lead them out and away from the church. And so he's saying, you are vulnerable in the same way Eve was vulnerable to that teaching. And here's the problem, that Satan's ploys to divide and destroy the church, they are cunning. He does not come in waving his hands, saying, Jesus is not Lord. Right? Or, you know, I can jump off a building and fly. They don't come in with flagrant hand-waving error. They come in using all the same words, dressing the same way, speaking the same language, and appearing to hold out the same thing. It's cunning. It is not easy to detect. Biblical faithfulness must embrace this reality that we are not living in a world that Satan is not interested in the church. He's interested in dividing and destroying the church, and he does it with cunning teaching. Notice that Paul says that your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Our thoughts are captivated by what we hear. Our thoughts are captivated, and they lead us in a direction. And so our minds, Paul says in other places in Colossians, our minds must be renewed in the truth. Always, always renewing your mind in the truth so that you'll be able to detest And discern what is true. And he says that if someone comes and enters proclaiming another Christ, if you receive a different spirit or a different gospel, there's three elements that might be introduced. Any one of which, if they are false, will destroy the church. If you get a false Jesus, your church is dead. If you receive a false spirit, your church is dead or split. If you receive a false gospel, your church is dead. Because you do not have the cornerstone, the savior of all mankind. You do not have the spirit or the helper who is from God. And you do not have a gospel message which will save the lost. These are the three elements that Paul says will be counterfeit by Satan in the church. And their demonic and their destruction. 
they're destructive. Again, any counterfeits in, in the way of those three elements, they will all spin off completely separate religions that all share the same name as ours. That's a dramatic reality to embrace. I know this is, we're looking forward to 2020. Aren't we supposed to be positive here? This is one element that we have to have our eyes open about, friends. When Christ or the Spirit or the Gospel is counterfeit, it will spin off religions that are utterly different from our own, but have the same name. In the last election, actually, uh, Maxime Bernier ran, uh, who was the leader of a political party. I mean, he was a big player in the election. He was in the debates. In his riding, sort of a, a phony political party called the Rhinoceros Party, they ran a candidate in the same riding, in Maxime Bernier's riding, whose name was Maxime Bernier. You can't make this stuff up. They ran a candidate with the same name in that riding in order to help undermine his victory. This is exactly, exactly what Satan does. Satan is running a candidate among the church whose name is Jesus, who has a spirit, who has a gospel, but it's not the real one. No wonder Paul is jealous for them. No wonder he is so intensely vulnerable to them to keep them in the truth. This is what's at stake when we talk about biblical literacy. We're not just talking about memorizing all the words or knowing all the theological categories. We are talking about who do you belong to? Do you know the Christ of the Bible? And Satan always, always, always begins with the Bible. He begins with what God already said. In the garden, he said, did God really say? Friends, all Christian spin-off false religions begin with, is that what it really says? Is that what that really says? And so there's a threat. Satan is sowing false teaching. He is introducing a counterfeit candidate for your attention. And he says, you need to know the Christ of the Bible. You need to know the Christ of the apostolic witness. You cannot have the Christ of your dreams. You cannot have the Jesus calling Christ. You cannot have the private revelation Jesus. Jesus told me this. You need the apostolic Jesus. This is why only apostles wrote and witnessed and planted the church in the first century. Because they walked with Jesus. They knew him. The Gnostics came along and they said, we've got a Jesus for you. Paul said, no, you don't. You've got your own. You need the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus does not exert his power outside of the words that he has spoken and left for us through the scriptures. And so Paul's worried. Here's why he's worried. This is the second point in our outline. Verses 4 through 6. What do they say? If someone comes and proclaims to you another Jesus, that you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. In other words, Paul's not just trying to start a fight with this church. He's not like, ah, things have been too good. I just want to ruffle your feathers and make you feel uncomfortable. He's not on a power trip here. What he's saying is, I have looked at your church. I'm watching you, Corinthians, and I'm worried that you are too easygoing. I'm worried that if somebody comes in with a false doctrine, a false Jesus, a false gospel, that you're fine with it. Now, friends, it might be easier to do in the context of a gathered church. If we have a new person come who sort of subtly starts teaching and influencing people, we can sort of identify that person. But do you know what threat Paul was not even speaking of here that we must include in this? Is your access to the worldwide content of so-called Christian teaching. All of many of you that I've spoken with listen to podcasts or watch videos on YouTube. And those things are wonderful. I do it all the time myself. But the same thing can happen there. Where on Sunday mornings, oh, we get great teaching. But over here on, on my personal time, we can listen to and ingest all kinds of heresy and false teaching and not recognize that it's in opposition to what we're learning together as a church. And Paul says, you put up with it. Paul's saying, I'm worried that you're going to put up with it. I'm worried that it's not going to bother you. 
I'm worried that you're just going to say, yeah, we can move over and share some space here with this false teaching. There's too wide a tolerance. In other words, what Paul's saying here is that not everything that shines is a diamond. Not everything that's said from a pulpit is from God. And not everything called a church is one. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying just because you use the words, just because you look the part, Paul is saying don't put up with it just because it's there. He's saying I'm worried. He is talking to the church in Canada in 2020. That's us. The spe- for our watching world, let's just, put, let's just do a mental game here. For our watching world, we have got churches in Smith Falls that range everywhere from denying that God is a reality, affirming all sorts of immorality, right up to hyper-strict, exclusive sects of Christianity. And we're in that spectrum somewhere. So for the watching world, this is what they see. Okay, so there's a bunch of Christians in this town. There's about 11 different churches. And I can talk to one pastor who says, oh yeah, you know, God totally approves of all sexual immorality. God has no problem with your sin. You just need to X, Y, Z, realize this and that, and boom, you're a child of God. It's, it's no problem. Then they can walk down the street and talk to another pastor who says, you need to repent of your immorality. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you need to be a part of the church. Then you talk to somebody else who says, well, if you, uh, you, know, if you buy gas on a Sunday, you're going to hell. I mean, they can experience every, the whole spectrum of nonsense. Some of it true, some of it false. We can set up our own forms of religion and say, this is Christianity. For our watching world, what does that tell them? What the heck is Christianity? I have no idea. Because pastor one, priest one says this, pastor two or three says this. And here's the part that's our problem. That we stand alongside and we basically go, yeah. That's the problem. False teaching is going to exist. Satan is going to introduce counterfeit Christianity. The problem is when the true church is not willing to identify it. If we say we know the scriptures and we are not discerning the truth, how are the sheep supposed to? Canada's number one guilt is that we have made it a biblical sin to call out false teaching. We have made that the unpardonable Christian sin. We can't do that. Our witness is at stake. Our evangelism is at stake. The world doesn't want to watch us fight. You know what? The world wants to figure out what's true. What the world needs to see is the true church standing up and saying, this is Christianity. That is not They need to see that. And Paul says, I'm afraid that you're not going to do it. I'm looking at your church and I'm saying, who's going to stand up and say, that's not real Christianity. That's not the real Jesus. That's not the spirit of God. That's not the gospel. The church in Canada in the 21st century has become nicer than Jesus. Who flipped the tables of the money changers in the temple. We've become nicer than John the Baptist who called the Pharisees a brood of snakes. And we've become nicer than Paul who said that he wished that the Judaizers would castrate themselves. All in the Bible. We're too nice for that. We are too nice for that. Friends, I'm not... Okay, I am drawing my sword. But I'm not saying... That to be a faithful church, you need to go out and start arguments and fight people all over left, right, and center. No. Okay, I thought that that was my job when I was about 19 or 20, and, and God corrected me. You need to, the scriptures say you need to correct with patience and understanding and even kindness that you would win people to the truth. Our job is not to condemn people. Christ did not even condemn people. Our job is to win them to the truth. Do you understand? It's to win people to the truth. But you will never win people to the truth if you affirm the error that they believe. You cannot have it both ways. And so in our cultural moment, I believe that what Paul is saying is you're vulnerable here. You're vulnerable, church. 
You're vulnerable to putting up with this falsehood. And Paul says, look, these super apostles, okay, they're taller, they're more handsome, they've got a flashier story, they're more skilled in speech. Paul says, yeah, I get that. I'm not as skillful as them. I'm not as impressive as them. But he says, I have the knowledge that I need to tell you this. I have the scriptural knowledge. I have the Holy Spirit. I have that he's writing the Bible for goodness sakes. He knows the truth and he's saying, I'm not stepping aside because they're more impressive. I'm not stepping aside because they've been around longer. I'm not stepping aside because they have more money. I'm not. Paul says, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to teach you the truth and I'm going to contend against them. And so we need to train ourselves in discernment in the scriptures of who Christ is. Thirdly, biblical ministry must be contrasted against false ministry. Paul deals directly with the false teachers here in verse 7 down through 15. And so he gives a bit of context here and he says, Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel free of charge? In other words, what he's saying is, I came and preached to you for free. Paul was a single man, and we know that he would preach during the day, and he would go work with his hands at night. He would build tents. So he would craft uh, leather coverings and stakes, and he would literally build dwellings for people. And so he was bivocational. It's a very famous fact about the Apostle Paul. A lot easier to do that when you don't have a wife and children to care for at home in the evening hours. And so Paul was very effective in this calling. And sometimes he chose to rely on his own skill, his own uh, vocation to make money in particular situations. Paul was the first one to say a preacher is worthy of the money that he gets paid. But he said in certain situations, he deprived himself of that right so that he could achieve some greater spiritual end. This is the Corinthians is a perfect example. He came and he preached to them for free. And what he's saying is, they misunderstood that as being cheap. Oh, this guy is just wandering through. But the super apostles, they were coming through and saying, this is our rate. We demand $1,000 for a speaking engagement. We need a five-star hotel, and I, need a, and I need a car service from my hotel to the church. So the super apostles looked really impressive, and the Corinthians wanted to pay them. The Corinthians wanted to say, yeah, you know, you look like a real apostle of Jesus, you know. You know, God's children only travel first class. And so the, the Corinthians were mistaking the flash and grandeur of the super apostles as being the truth. And Paul is saying, did I make a mistake by preaching to you for free? He took support from other churches. He let other churches support him financially so that he could preach to the Corinthians. And what's amazing here, so what, so what Paul is saying is, you can't question my motives. I'm not here trying to extort you. I'm not trying to take advantage of you. I've preached to you for free the whole time. Don't brush off my warning as being manipulative. Paul is saying, you need to listen to me. I've proven myself and my conduct to be truthful. And what I love about this is that Paul says to himself and to the Corinthians, or let's put it this way. He rhetorically asks, well, you know, should I change my approach? Maybe if I came in and charged you money and, you know, drove the big car, sorry for mixing metaphors here and everything, they didn't have cars then, but maybe if I came in as an impressive apostle, maybe then you would follow me instead of the false teachers. He's just saying, I need to do the worldly thing better. Sound familiar? If we just do our music better, if we become more impressive, then people will believe our message. Paul says, nope. I'm not going to imitate false ministry. I'm not going to imitate false apostles. I'm not going to do what they're doing. I could care less. He doubles down on his approach. And he says, I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going to be the ridiculed, lowly, sort of, you know, half impoverished apostle because it's the truth that is going to win the people. It's not the appearance. And he does this specifically to contrast his ministry with false ministry. He does... He says, I'm taking aim at them. What I am doing, verse 12, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their mission is the same terms as ours. In other words, these super apostles are saying, hey, we're just like the apostle Paul. Paul is saying, no, you're not. Go preach for free, then I'll believe you. That's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying, drop all the money, drop all the grandeur, and go do ministry for free. Then we'll know that you really believe your message. Paul's saying, I'm going to continue doing things the way I'm doing it in order that people will know my ministry is different. Paul strategically aligns himself in a certain way so that his ministry will stand out as truthful. He contrasts his biblical mandate and ministry against the false teachers. Friends, this is what we need to understand. And I think that we've lost this in our current time, that false teaching is always embodied. False teaching doesn't just float around like a podcast. False teaching is carried by someone. Someone is teaching it. Someone is perpetuating a false gospel, a false Jesus, uh, administering a false spirit. We need to embrace that. We are so good at separating somebody's intentions from their teaching. Oh, you know, I know their heart. I know what they're trying to get at. And we refuse to call out error because it's a person. And we want to love people. And we do. But Paul says you cannot confront false teaching without confronting false teachers. You can't do it. He has no charitable category for them. Listen to his language. Verse 13, such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. There's no happy category for them. There's no, well, you know, just let them speak and listen to them. And then maybe you'll have dialogue and then maybe you'll win them. Paul says they're false. There's no charitable category for false teaching. They disguise themselves. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was preaching to the Ephesian church and he went to leave, he brought the Ephesian elders with him to the beach and he said, I have not shrunk from teaching you anything. I've given you everything I know about the Christian faith and about the Lord. And he said this, when I leave, wolves will arise from among you and they will not spare the flock. How's that for an encouraging word to a young elder? I'm leaving. Wolves are going to come out from your church and they will not spare the church. This is Paul's mindset towards persevering as a Christian. You cannot let your guard down. You cannot act as if you are all protected and safe if you are not discerning in the truth. Paul says these people need to be put out. They need to be silenced. Titus 1 says they need to be silenced. 1 John 4, this is how the disciple John uh, describes this process. Brothers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and everyone who listens to us uh, is from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John also says in that book that they went out from among us so that it would be shown that they were not of us. This is critical to the life of the church. So Paul contrasts his ministry against them. So where do we go from this? What Paul is saying is that this Corinthian church, they had the best Bible teacher in the history of the world. Okay, and they were still in danger of slipping. Friends, you have got a very mediocre Bible teacher in your midst. So we need to discern ourselves and, and friends, meditate on God's word. Go from this place and meditate on the scriptures. Go through the scriptures that I've preached and test whether or not everything has been spoken of truthfully. Test what I say. Test what your friends say against the word of God. Because the danger is to slip into spiritual death. Now again, 
I feel like I need to make one more disclaimer that there are many foolish divisions in the church. I grant that. There are churches who split and divisions that occur that are foolish. They're a waste of time. They're not God-honoring. Okay? Some people think that by dividing against good brothers and sisters that they're being more pure. That's not what's in view here. It's that the church of God will be a discerning people who have eyes and ears only for the truth. That's in the church. And then when we look at our culture, we need to recognize that in times where the culture is slipping and they have less and less interest and knowledge about God, our temptation is to shave off the things that we think they don't want in order to help attract them. And friends, the opposite is true. Jesus said that you don't light a lamp in a house and then put a basket over it. That's what the church does when we say, well, you don't need to know that. You don't need to know that part of our doctrine. You don't need to know that part of the truth. Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. So shine. So speak the truth. So believe the truth. Hold to the truth, for that is what will save people. And lastly, and this is what, if I die before next week, Lord willing, I'll be here. But what Paul is saying is that the word, the, the point of the word is that you would have a sincere and simple devotion to Christ. It's not about which church you go to, per se. It's about, do you have Jesus Christ? Are you one with him? Do you abide in Jesus Christ? Do you follow and obey and, and, and commune with Christ himself? That is your only hope. Your hope is not to go to a church that's theologically sound or to go to a church that confronts error. Your only hope is to have a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. You. You, you, you. Not me. I mean, me, yes, but it's you, right? You will stand before God, not with me beside you. Do you have a sincere and simple devotion to Jesus Christ? That's the purpose of the Bible. That's what the Bible's for. And our aim as a church is to present everybody mature in that knowledge. It's not to be more right than somebody else. It's not to fight battles. It's not to be strong for its own sake. It's so that we will win people to the truth that Christ may be honored among his redeemed. We want to love people. We want to confront the error that they live under. And we want to win them to the truth with the words of Scripture. May God give us strength and faithfulness to do this. Let me pray.